Hi, this is Robert Kuhn on The Pulse, and today we're looking at Theology of the Body, a guide. So this is guide is from Christopher West's talks from the Gift Foundation, um, provided a free uh, download for a summary of his talks. So this talk is entirely inspired from Christopher West's talks, and these are my notes and reflections on the Gift Foundation by Christopher West. So original man, from the beginning it was not so. So we've left the state of innocence irrevocably behind to have a good understanding of our anthropology is to have a good understanding of where we are from. A search into history plunges us into our roots. Christ calls us to refer to the beginning of human existence, theological prehistory. It's indispensable to look at the original human experience in order to construct a theology of the body. And this brings us to a relationship between experience and revelation. We can only ponder abstract considerations rather than man as a living person. We also look at the revealed word of God. We're not supposed to understand Genesis in literal or with historical certainty. The only way to the beginning is through the symbolism of biblical language. This is the mystery of the revealed word of God. We're not obligated to believe in a talking snake. Something diabolical happened in the beginning. A mythical language is used. Myth doesn't mean something's not true. It means an archaic way of uh, expressing a deeper content. So these are stories that are revealed by God. When we speak about original human experiences, these are always at the root of every human experience. So there's two accounts of the story in creation and Genesis. The second creation account is more a reflection on the subjective reality of the person. The first creation account is about the first experience of personhood. The three original human experiences about solity, solitude, unity, and nakedness. Genesis says that the original solitude is one of the first discoveries of personhood. It is not good that man should be alone. Man is alone without the woman. Man in the book of Genesis is not distinguished between male and female until after a very deep sleep. Solitude is something that applies to every human being. We alone, we are alone in the invisible world as persons. Adam was created from the dust of the ground, but he had something more. The breath of God was breathed into the dust. The breath of God was present. The animals were also created from the dust, but they did not have the breath of God in them. Adam was in charge of tilling the garden and looking after the animals. Reflect on your own life. Does this ring true? We are different from the animals. There's a difference between human beings and animals. Animals do not build cathedrals or skyscrapers. Have you ever seen a squirrel in lineup for confession? Only human beings are made in the image and likeness of God. Solit solitude is the discovery that we are made to be in the relationship with God. Man has a capacity for freedom, but also for love. But because of this, he can also lead to evil. Adam, who has the breath in him, has a capacity for love. So the only way to fulfill ourselves is through a loving relationship with God. Adam was not an anybody but a somebody. We're called to relationship with God and called to love. This is experienced in and through the body. The body, human body, expresses the person. The human person is penetrable and transparent. We are spiritual, but the spiritual is revealed through the body. Man discovers this in and through the body. The body reveals this through the spirit. Adam came to understand who he was. So the body is not something that's synonymous with sexuality. Corporeality and sexuality are not completely the same thing. We're called to be in communion with others. Marriage is not just the meaning of life, but just a sign. The true meaning of life is found through relationships with God. Sexuality is meant to mirror the relationship with God. 
Adam is called to love God. We're called to live in covenant. A marriage is sought with God. Sex is the word that normally refers to the difference between a man and a woman. Sex is not, not, something, you, not something you do, not something you are, not the sexual act, but the difference between man and woman. It's only in the creation of woman that mankind, mankind experiences sexuality. When Adam is put into a deep sleep, man returns to a state of non-being. Woman comes out of man in a creative act of God. Man wants to find a creative being for himself. Adam longs to give away, give away the love of God in him. He dreams of a perfect lover, of a body and a person. At last, God creates a body that expresses a person. When he looked at the body of Eve, he saw that she was different from the animals and shared Adam's solitude. She was made in the image of God and was called to love. Masculinity and femininity are two incarnations of the same solitude or humanity. They're two different ways of being a man. There is an essential difference. Man and woman complete each other. There are two ways of being conscious of the body. Every human is either man or woman. We cannot find meaning without any relationship at all. It's not the meaning of life to get married. We're clinging to a road sign than rather going to the destination if we believe this. Solitude then leads to the next experience, unity. Freedom is a prerequisite to love. All of God's creation shows something of God. Man has the capacity to love. Even dogs that copulate show something about God. The absolute denial of original solitude brings us to a level to believe that we are just like the animals, especially with our sexuality, that this is not true. Man becomes in the image of God, not so much in the moment of solitude, but a moment of communion. The blessing of our fertility is part that we have freedom and the capacity to love. Joining of two bodies is a sacrament of expression showing the communion of persons. It's a common union where one freely gives oneself himself to another. It's a unity and goodness and gift of another. The mutual relation with one another is in communion that mutually confirms one another as persons. The conjugal act, one flesh union, is deeply connected with the spiritual part of a person. If a man and a woman do not have a spiritual communion, their bodies are lying to each other in sex. The devil attacks marriage as an expression of union. Many people think that sex is the last place to look for God. The conjugal union is part of the mystery of God. Sex taps into God's original plan as it was meant to be and looks to renew it. A truly marital act is not the loss of virginity, but living of the truth of virginity. Virginity is synonymous with the integrity of the body and the soul. Virginity means that the human being is untouched in the rupture of body and soul. In a true expression of the conjugal act, it is confirms the dignity of the body. This is not a loss, but a gain. In this way, a married couple expresses spiritual love in their communion. Now, people, triply, people typically experience sex as a disintegrating experience. We must allow Christ to transform this. The experience of the marital act is not a loss. The marital act is reliving the original virginal value of the body. Man stands as a body before God. The two became one flesh. These are the words that constitute the flesh in the body. They contain an ethical and a sacramental dimension. Pope John Paul talked about the ethics of the sign. The one flesh union is a sign of God's love. In Genesis 2.25, we read that they were naked without shame. This allows us to penetrate the original experience. What is the experience of shame all about? Why do we experience shame as a phenomena? There's nothing shameful about being naked alone. When a stranger comes in, you cover your body. Deep within our hearts, we know that we are meant to be loved, never to be used. We sense that a stranger will not look on you with love. Strangers more like to see bodies and objects of selfish gratification. The body is not to be used as an object because we are called to protect our dignity. Perfect love casts out fear. 
In nakedness, there was defencelessness before the other. In the absence of barriers, there was a mutual exchange and original instance of knowledge. The deepest desire of the human heart is to be seen by the other. Sin has wreaked havoc on this original desire by twisting the original truth. Nakedness is key to understand the original biblical experience. When we see each other, we're not just seeing an exterior dimension of the world. We are all very good because we are created with the goodness of God. We're gradually called to reclaim the good of God's vision. We're not perfect in this world because of original sin, but we should strive for perfection. We will always need fig leaves in this world. The nakedness in the beginning is an example of purity. We see each other with the peace of the original gaze. Intimacy can be translated into into me see. The body is a gift. It's nothing but the sheer gratuitous gift of God. We're created in order to share the love of God. We're created as male and female to symbolize the giving of humanity. We open up ourselves in order to receive again as gift. God creates us in self-giving love. We're witnesses to creation as fundamental gifts. This is the source of where self-giving begins. Sex is a gift from God. It's meant to be lifted as a gift. A gift means love. God gives himself to us because he loves us. We give back to him. Man and woman are self-giving to one another. They symbolize the exchange of Trinity. We're created to be a gift. God gives us to himself in creation. God's gift is stamped into the body. The natural meaning of the body is a whole reality that was meant to be created. It's an inner penetration of giving and receiving. The body has a natural meaning because in the marital spousal meaning, the body has a conjugal capacity of expressing love. The means of this gift is very central to the meaning and being of existence. Why did God make us this way? A woman's body does not make sense by itself. It's called towards communion and union. In the spirit of the call to love, we see a call to perfect integrity of body and soul. The body shows exteriorly the reality of the soul. True love always bears fruit. God did not create us for his sake. He created us for our own sake. One in the sincere giving of oneself, we can find ourselves. Another world for God's gift for us is grace. We are filled with the love of God. This is the nuptial meaning of the body. It's an indispensable theme of our existence and sexual complementarity. It leads to a call of union and then fruitfulness. The freedom of the gift is just to experience sexual desire as it was in the beginning. God created sexual desire and the beginning to love as God loves. Adam looked upon Eve's naked body and just desired to love her freely. He only saw her as a person and wanted to give her, himself to her freely. Adam trusted in the freedom of Eve. Adam could not grasp at her and trust in her freedom. The freedom of the gift is the freedom to bless, not to grasp or possess. Man and woman are both naked without shame to share in the freedom of the gift. Are you in control of your passions or are your passions in control of you? Your desires unruly. Do you desire total freedom? Grace is a mysterious gift to inner man. It involves disinterested gift of oneself. The word family is a beautiful acronym. It means forget about me, I love you, F-A-M-I-L-Y. Original happiness is originated in love. It's called to initiate love. If you have God's love in you, you have to give it away. Perfect love casts out shame. God instituted the one flesh union from the beginning. It's a perfect experience of God's love. The meaning of the body is to be filled with God's grace. We truly participate in the divinity of God. The body in it alone can make visible the invisible love of God. In the one flesh union, we're to make present and participate in the very life and love of God. Despite sin, we can reclaim original reality. We can reclaim virginity. The deepest essence of marriage life is that Adam knew his wife. The knowledge and dignity of the person is the knowledge of the goodness of human life. Sin, suffering, damage was not cancelled out on our goodness. 
The devil's goal is to prevent the gift of divine life. Devil goes after women to deny the gift. Human sin is the denial of the gift. Men and women call to be fruitful and multiply. There's pain in the man sowing the seed. Paul Kaye, in the meaning of human suffering, says the sexual sin divorces true love from suffering. That suffering should be embraced as part of true love. Couples that live in the truth of marital love show that this life is very good. So, historical man, the theology of the body is to call to discover original fullness. It's to look back at the interior self of man's deep heart. We experience the forces of good and evil within each one of us. The heart is the deep interior reality of a person. In the heart, we know and experience the nuptial meaning of the body. God's plan works through the heart. The heart is where we consciously experience the body. The circumcision of the heart is where the impurities are cut away and the heart is open and exposed to the love of God. So often the heart is closed with callousness to the love of God. Christ is calling us to circumcise our hearts to the love of God. Christ's words show how deep down it's necessary to go to fulfill the gospel. Should we fear the severity of Christ's words? Perhaps it'd be better to have confidence in their salvific content. These words have power to save us from our lusts. In our own experience, we know how deep our own lusts go, but our hearts are deep, deeper than our lusts or experience. Lust does not define you. Weaknesses and failures do not define you. Man must see again if he's to regain the fullness of his humanity. Lust is severe and not a minor thing. We all have lusts in our hearts. This changes the way we see the whole world. When we uphold our dignity and looks, conscious and behaviour, we begin with a new ethos as the dignity of human being is assigned as an ethos. <coughs> There's a relationship between ethics and ethos. An ethic is a subjective norm. An ethos refers to an inner desire of the human heart, shows what you're attract to, attracted to. In the Sermon of the Mount, John Paul II said that Christ was trying to bring the ethic and the ethos together. You can follow rules without being very holy. An inner change of heart is needed. The real ethos is to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. We need to love enemies and do good to those who persecute you. It's impossible to keep the Lord's commandments from the outside. It must come from the depths of the heart. The ethos of redemption is an ongoing conversion to change our hearts. Subjective desires come to conformity with the law. Christ not only confirms the commandments, but leads to a strengthening of the depth of the human person. He brings liberation from lust. The Christian ethos changes what you're attracted to and what you're repulsed by. The transformation of conscience and the value of body and sex according to the Creator's plan can happen when we open our lives to Christ. The very desires of your senses are ordered to what is true, beautiful and good when we have a new ethos. The perfection of the moral good is moved to the good, not only by the will. In living morally, we realise the very meaning of being a woman. We are drawn by the will, heart and sensitive appetite. Laws in and of themselves do not change human hearts. Christ did not come into the world to give us more laws to follow. Jesus did not come to abolish the law to fulfill it. What was led by the Spirit to bring freedom. The laws of the Gospels bring no new eternal precepts. Christ came to take rebellious hearts so they would be in conformity with the law. It's possible to be lusting on the inside, but be following the law. With Christ's intervention, you no longer need the commandment not to do so. We only need laws when our hearts desire to break them. Law is not an imposition. Christ gave us the power to fulfill the law. So if a person is led by the Holy Spirit, he no longer leads the law to commit adultery. If you're attracted to pornography, your ethos is wrong. 
Christ came to change your heart so you'd be repulsed to the idea of looking at another human being as a thing. This is not a theory. Justice happens with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and the interior perception of values. Grace has the power to change hearts. Jesus did not come into the world to die on the cross to give us a coping mechanism for sin. He did so to give us real power to overcome sin. This is the news of the gospel. We need a saviour. We are to fulfil the meaning of life. We need a saviour. We cannot do it on our own. If you're living a Christian life without Christ, you just want to be a good person. Christ gives us a radical power of transformation. God has poured us upon an infinite grace. We just need to tap into that grace. So God is perfect love. If God created deep desires for union and communion, God wants to fulfill our desires. He wants to give us the deepest desires of our hearts. All we need to do then is receive. We can either grab out or receive. We need to resist the inner temptation to grasp and return to receptivity. The Eucharist is thanksgiving. The Father gives everything to the Son. We've been goaded by the devil to try and think of the Father as the dominating tyrant. God does not want to break our backs. The deepest yearning is for the donation of creation. God turns his back on who is love in the original sin, which attempts to abolish fatherhood. The Our Father prayer is the antidote to original sin. God is not a slave driver. Faith is the openness of the human heart to the gift. On the cross, Jesus is saying God loves you and wants you to grant you the deepest desires of your heart. Man loses purity of heart and the original freedom in the original sin. Brings a rupture between body and soul. We come to blame the body for this. Adam attempts to blame Eve. How many men attempt to blame women for their lusts? Women have a responsibility to dress modestly. Man also has an obligation to see her as a person. Jesus came to help us with the disorder of our hearts. We should never look on the sexual values of bodies as a thing. Shame serves to protect the value of the person. The purity of heart brings the absorption of shame by love. Shame is dissolved by love, swallowed up in love, and a positive sense. It protects the dignity of the body and lust. Shame is a natural form of self-defense for a person. It's also called modesty. True love swallows shame. Shame is the natural way of avoiding a poor sense of the body. In Jesus Christ, through the ethos of redemption, we see the absorption of shame through love. Interpersonal communication was shattered by the original sin. Imprinted on this is shame is man's certain image of himself. In the negative of photography, we see something of what a picture is meant to look like. It's developed into a positive. The very fact that shame entered the human person means that we do not have to lose sight of God's original plan. This debunks the Lutheran notion of utter depravity. We still long for God's original plan. There's a difference between shamelessness and being naked without shame. Lust is uninspired sexual desire. It's the disorder of our passions devoid of the love of God. Lust is sexual desire devoid of God's love. Hell and lust are the same thing. Sexual desire in and of itself is not bad. Lust seeks the sensation of sexuality, no longer the freedom of the gift. It grasps at the other. Lust demonstrates the rupture between body and soul. It utterly violates the personalistic norm. Lust shatters the feeling of solitude. Lust dominates the heart and the body. Lust ruins the matrimonial significance of the body. It aims directly to satisfy sexual needs. Lust is not capable of forming a proper communion of persons. The gift changes to grasping in the extreme. Lust is rape. So there's great confusion between lust and love. How can we trust our hearts with mixed motives? We must keep our hearts under control. We're called to experience a true liberation from lust. This is the condition of all human life together in truth. 
the impurity of the lustful heart is the root of all disordered behavior. The deepest part of human ethics and culture is liberation from lust. Lust is part of both the male and female experience. Men generally experience lust as a physical gratification towards women. Women have an emotional gratification towards men. As a generalization, men will either use love in order to get sex, while women use sex to get love. With the ethos of the gospel, there's a possibility of true internal transformation. God has a special responsibility as he is to initiate the gift. They must be sincere for women know they're being used. It's even possible to use your wife to commit adultery. Some experience the same sex attraction. They might have the struggle their whole lives. There's no magic prayer to take it away. We need to fill our tires to progressively move towards the living God. The cross of Jesus Christ goes deeper than your wounds. God holds out the possibility of redemption to every one of us. You're not the sum total of your weaknesses and failings. Real power comes from the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's how we experience that redemption, which is important. St. Paul said that we groan inwardly as we wait the redemption of our bodies. Redemption is not just one aspect, but we also need the redemption of the soul. Redemption of the body is for the whole human person. Man has a cosmic dimension. There's the possibility of real victory in the battle between love and lust. There's a victory that we can already begin to experience. In the Old Testament, they did not have the power to overcome lust. Polygamy is allowed to compromise with lust. The more the heart is disordered, the more you need laws and regulations to provide harmony. Laws are symptoms of the heart that's not yet transformed. The prescriptions of the Old Testament do not show any tendency to change the ethos in any way. If the heart is disordered, the body follows. There were people in the New Testament who had the grace of the Holy Spirit, just as people in the New Testament who are carnal, not living under the regime of the law. Christians are not people who just follow a bunch of roles. We progress to experience conversion of heart. This is the real power that works in us now. The redemption of the body is not an eschatological, but a historical reality. We cannot return to the state of innocence. Christ's words in the Sermon on the Mount become for each of us the power of the mystery of redemption. Historical man is called to live conjugal union as part of the mystery of redemption. We have to fight the tenacity heresy of Manichaeism. We must content our invertebrate habits based on the heresy of Manichaeism. This sprang from dualism, the split of body and soul. Saw matter as evil and condemned everything that was corporeal. This was meant as condemnation to marriage and conjugal life. Said that spirit was good and the body was bad. It's infiltrated the minds of Christians since the third century. There's many tenets of Manichaeism that would pass as normal from the pulpit. How many people think that the church negates the values of sex? Theology of the body is a decisive time for the church to exercise the demon of Manichaeism from Catholic moral theology. Christ does not devalue the body and sexual desire, but reclaims God's beautiful desire within it. Christ sees the body as value not sufficiently appreciated. The problem with our culture is not that it overvalues it, but our culture has no clue how valuable sex is. The body is so good our brains cannot fully comprehend how good they are. Christ demands detachment from the evil of lust. The error of Manichaeism lies in being assigned to the evil in the body rather than the devil, the evil disorder of the heart. There's a difference between Orthodox Christianity and heresy. The redemption does not immediately remove the consequences of sin. We get older and suffer from concupiscence. The reality of concupiscence is that we should not hold the human heart in continual suspicion. The masters of suspicion, Freud and Marx, do not believe in the transforming power of the gospel. Christ has set us free from the dominion of concupiscence. 
some people think that church teaches pie in the sky idealism because grace is all powerful the cross should not be emptied of a power it's not just a theory but something i know the cross of christ is much deeper god's commandments are here not so you may be miserable but he gives us these commandments that these joys might be in your and your joy should be full we must learn to open our hearts to this invitation Anybody can walk up to a piano and play a random noise in the keys. It takes a real concert pianist to tickle the keys, to lift the music to the heavens. Behind the pianist is mature spontaneity. Anyone can make just a bunch of meaningless noise. This is like lust. A husband and wife, through discipline and asceticism, can discern the difference between love and lust. Lust crucified can spontaneously transform our heart, make beautiful mystic music that lifts towards the heavens. This can be learned with perseverance and consistency. We can learn in books on the abstract what's really needed through hearts and transformation to really learn this. People have not been educated in the real power of the redemption. Lust in the heart does not mean one's only options are oppression or indulgence. You should give your heart towards the redemption. Lust is the twisting or distortion of something that God gave us. We should thank God in the gift of sexuality. When we are crucified with Christ, we experience the resurrection with him. The only way to get to the Easter Sunday is through Good Friday. Why is Friday called good when the day the most heinous crime was created? The biggest good was coming on this day. Our sins must be ready to die and being crucified, you'll know true freedom. Freedom comes according to the Holy Spirit. We want to see the world and the body as God sees it. When we open our hearts and bodies to a power beyond us that's present in us, this is what purity of heart is. It doesn't mean where, matter where you've been, what you've done. As much as concupiscence dark, darkens the heart, life according to the spirit can lighten it. Purity of heart is possible. It's the manifestation of divine beauty. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they see the God, sign of God's mystery revealed through the body. To the pure, all things are pure. Purity is the glory of God, human body before God. Purity is not just adherence to chastity and temperance. It's more positive than negative. It's more than perfect to the dignity of the human body. So many people turn away due to the negative dimension of purity. Purity must mature to the start of the true dignity of the body. We have the ability with the way we look to others in order to build them up or not. Perfect purity, a man enjoys the fruits of victory won over by lust. It is possible to control one's own body in holiness and honour. The true efficacy of the Holy Spirit is the gift of simplicity, explicit in it in interior joy. This kind of purity is a maturity of authentic love. You're called to freedom. Do not use your servant freedom to be a servant, but be a gift to one another. Do not submit then to a yoke of slavery. Do not use your freedom as an opportunity to serve the flesh. Freedom is the necessity to love. The other side of freedom is the capacity to sin. Personalism has an emphasis on self-determination, that we perceive the possibility of virtue and the sublimation of lust towards the truth of love. A society that talks about freedom, about being whatever you want to do, is more orientated towards slavery rather than freedom. Freedom means the choice to say yes and say no. You cannot say no. What's your yes really worth? True freedom brings liberation. This calls me to do good. Thank God we have merciful love. Can the naked body be portrayed in art without offending dignity? It absolutely can. The responsibility of the portrayal of the naked body is not as a delicate problem. It's a gift that we can be threatened into a anonymous nature of abuse. The artist must see the true dignity in the nuptial meaning of the body. 
The intention of the artist is very important. If he only wants to fuel lustful desires, he's not helping us to see the natural meaning of the body. The manner in which the body is portrayed is very important. It's important not to divorce the body from the body of the person. It's important to overcome limits of shame. We can do this only with a proper resistance. Pope John Paul in the restoration of the Sistine Chapel called from the removal of the loincloths. Sistine Chapel is the sanctuary of the theology of the body. Pope John Paul's homily at the restoration of the chapel reminded us the evocative words of Genesis, that they were naked without shame. We must promote the dignity and beauty of the human body, not to be ashamed for any suffering involved and be ready for the resurrection, even in this life. So eschatological man. First, we looked at the origins, the histories of man. Then this gave us an adequate anthropology. Now we look at the destiny of man and the gift of redemption. We're gradually inflating our tires. In the eschatological re reality, we find a dimension of human existence. When Pope John Paul talks about eschatological man, he mixed his Carmelite mysticism with phenomenology. The resurrection of the body is a key component of the Christian faith. Many people have an erroneous view of the human being. They see man as a shell from which to escape. Our bodies will die and return to dust. One day they will be raised. The resurrection of the bodies is a reply to the historical inevitability of death. Plato had the idea that heaven was the liberation from the body. Human soul needs a body to express itself, even in heaven. It's an obscenity when death separates the two. Ghosts and corpse cause horror because the body and the soul belong together. Jesus wept at the grave of Nazareth. Death is an obscenity that is a cosmic reality. When Jesus had a discussion with the Sadducees, his response to the question of the resurrection was that people neither marry or are given in marriage in, in, given in marriage in heaven. God will not be done away, but what brought the ultimate fulfillment? Marriage is a foreshadowing of the sign that points towards heaven. Heaven is the eternal marriage of the Lamb. This is the fulfillment of original solitude. The only thing that will ultimately satisfy. God made us for himself and our hearts do not rest until they rest of him. We should not make the union of sexes an idol. If we do lose sight of the heavenly ideal, we come to worship the creator rather than the creature rather than the creator. The union of the sexes is not the be all and end all. Every lie or heresy has a certain degree of truth. God gave us sexual desire. It's like a nuclear power of the soul. When misused, it's a human desire for heaven gone berserk. Our engines are inverted like imploding rockets on themselves when we close in on ourselves. We live in a planet of 6 billion people who are trying to make sense of their deepest desires and aspirations. True blessings of a wonderful marriage are only a foretaste, not the full thing. We are called to ultimate fulfillment to be grounded in a deep union with God. One human being would be crushed with the expectations to fully burden him. Marital union is a sign and an analogy of the foreshadowing is what's to come. Marriage and procreation do not determine the fundamental fulfillment of being a body. They give concrete reality in the dimension of being history. The earthly marriage is a preparation for the heavenly marriage. The body is the ultimate meaning, is a marriage of God. We need to give oneself to and unite with another person. Marriage is only a tentative solution to original solitude. Celibacy for the kingdom is another attempt to solve the problem. The resurrection will be a completely new experience. Pope John Paul has someone who's been completely beyond the veil of the mystery of God. As a mystic, he had an understanding of the essence of the beautific vision, a range of experience of love. We can only express this mystery in words that groan. 
humanity is not nullified but comes to fulfillment the proper and appropriate meaning of the body and sex we experience the perfect integration of body and soul if the life of god incarnates within us the primacy of the spirit is not at the expense of the body there's always the tension of experience within the spirit if we live according to the spirit not the flesh it's not the possibility of sin that will cease this is not doing away with sin because serious sin is always possible we have inherited a very dualistic way of seeing the body and soul. Pre-Cartesian cultures did not divide the reality into two mutually divided capacities. Descartes initiated angelism when he said that all matter came through his own thought. All that mattered came through his own thought. We've inherited this and placed our modern interpretations into the authors of the Bible. It's entirely erroneous to think of the body as good and the spirit as bad. Both the body and the spirit are capable of being spiritual. We receive dignity as a gift. Through the mystery of bread and wine, we share in the divinity of Christ. We will participate in the divine nature. Our small brains can't really take this in. Jesus Christ is the human face of God and the divine face of man. The beautific vision will bring us face to face in union with God. The mystery of God is through the body because it alone is capable of making visible what is invisible. God is a person, not a concept. God is the divine subject who makes a gift of himself to us. He gives us the reciprocal gift of himself to us. This is a mutual exchange, completely and definitively beautifying. There's an ecstasy in the eternal dimension. God gives himself totally to us. We are the only creature that can receive the totality of God. God gives the whole of himself we come to share. In the communion of the human and the divine, we have the body's capacity of expressing love. We have little idea what heaven will really be like. Heaven might be a state of perpetual virginity. The Virgin Mary lived in perfect union with God. We use our freedom to aspire to enter into perfect communion with God. So now we look at celibacy for the kingdom. In part one of the theology of the body, we look at who we are as human persons. In part two, we look at how we're supposed to live. Original man was the way humanity started. After the fall, we slowly tried to integrate body and soul. We needed to reinflate the tires and follow the signs. Marriage and celibacy are the two particular signs in which a Christian recognises the two specific ways to love. There's an actuation of the most profound truth about man, that he's created in the image of God. This is not to reject those who have not worked out their vocation. Everything we've talked about applies to everyone. We can also make a vocational choice to be single in the world. There's also a valid choice if it's chosen the service to others and not to indulge in selfishness. If we choose to sacrifice for others, this can bring forth good. A single person can live out the nuptial meaning of the body. Marriage is the only way to live out the nuptial meaning of the body. Celibacy is an eschatological pointer towards the wedding of the lamb. We only gain this understanding after seeing the sacramentality of marriage. Christ's words to the Pharisees want to see God's plan of marriage from the beginning. Some say if I have to be married to one woman for the rest of my life, it's better not to be married. Marriage for the Israelites fulfilled the covenant. Jesus said that some were eunuchs from birth, some were made so by men, and others made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven. This would have been so utterly shocking to the Israelites. It would have meant they could not participate in the covenant. Jesus says that continence can be a voluntary choice for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The spousal analogy is in the eternal marriage of the Lamb. Those who choose to be celibate for the sake of the kingdom skip the sacrament of the sake of ultimate reality. All energy and desire for reality is made for the marriage of Christ and the church. A consecrated celibate steps outside of history. He proclaims the kingdom of God is here. 
to avoid some major confusion about vacation. It's not what he gives up, but it, what he embraces. This involves sacrifice, but he's also embracing the heavenly marriage. One skips the foreshadowing of it in order to embrace the ultimate fulfillment. Christ refers to celibacy specifically in the context about the discussion with marriage. Earthly continence towards the body talks of the glorification for the kingdom of heaven. One is witness among men that anticipates the future resurrection. Many people that says the solution is to get rid of celibacy. The only solution is the solution of celibacy. That is then we have any clue of what sex is about on earth. Consecrated celibates are reminded of what we're destined for. We can only be satisfied in the marriage of the lamb. This is how we know the meaning of life. Christ's words do not express a command. The general rule is that people marry. Nobody forces anyone to be celibate. We must be a free choice in order to be authentic. Christ did not say he will force some to be eunuchs. Christ's words are voluntary and supernatural. They involve a personal decision. Celibacy is unnatural because it is supernatural. Celibacy can only be lived with supernatural grace. Marriage also can be lived with the gift of supernatural grace. For the Jews, marriage is a spiritual point because of the promise to Abraham. Celibacy is the way to live the natural meaning of the body. By remaining in solitude before God, a celibate chooses to remain in the ache of solitude before God. It is not good for man to be alone. We know that it's not good. I'm going to press into that ache so I understand in a more concrete way. The only thing that can satisfy that ache is God alone. We're destined to be a partner with the absolute. Celibacy is about marriage with God. We're destined to marital union with God as part of the covenant of God. The fulfillment of solitude shows union of God is the only thing that fills man's longings. Celibacy is not a rejection of communion, but a call to live out communion in a different way. When Christ speaks of making himself a eunuch, he does not seek to hide the anguish that it can have on man or woman because of noble inclinations of nature. This brings anguish in sacrificing that ache of the solitude. Christ did not say it was going to be easy. Celibacy demands the breaking away from the good of marriage. Self-sacrifices are indispensable. They're going to be fruitful in the long run. The idea that the vows of celibacy should be taken away due to infertility does not make sense. What happens when we apply this theory to marriage? We should never compromise truth because we all struggle. We're called to live in more fidelity in terms of Christ. There's more margin for error in, in marriage because a married man must use his sexual faculty in a pure and holy way. There's no definition for what that means. Marriage and celibacy flow from the same understanding of the redemption of the body. Marriage must never be understood as a legitimate outlet for concupiscence, having to repress it for the rest of one's life. Everyone is called to overcome the inclination towards concupiscence. It's only when we're overcoming concupiscence that we can discern vacation. Celibacy is not just about formation, but also for transformation. A person who has experienced how Christ has set us free, celibacy not only becomes a possibility, it also becomes quite attractive. Christ gives us grace for your whole life to live. Whatever your vocation, you'll still have to drill with the struggle of lust. Concupiscence is the disorder of human passions. The, the solution to the church's scandal is theology of the body. It will help us to crawl out of the mess made by the sexual revolution. A happy fault, the one for us, so great a redeemer, will turn into a happy sexual fault, the one for us, so great a theology of the body. A person who wants to live a celibate life must experience freedom from lust. St. Paul called for people to marry who could not exercise self-control. It is true that marriage is a remedy for concupiscence. Marriage is all about life-giving love. 
societal spouses as an ethos. St. Paul does not devalue marriage. St. Paul also wanted to spare us the troubles that couples have as he offered for his personal opinion. Celibacy is either easier because there is left of a margin forever. Celibacy is also a superior vocation. St. Paul said that each of us has our own special gift from God. Many have erroneously taught that where celibacy is good, that means marriage is bad. The idea that sex is impure and unholy is an idea that's bordering on heresy. The superior of continence over matrimony never meant the belittlement of marriage. We do not find any reason for disparagement of marriage in the words of Christ. Marriage is the normal and natural, while celibacy is the exceptional. The challenge to find your gift and what, what it is that you have been given. The celibate vocation is a path to holiness. Don't reject it. The married life is a path to holiness. Do not reject it, but live it and receive it. Everyone must be faithful to his gift. The offer of that gift is a grace from God. Everyone must be faithful to their gift. One must seek the gifts that are proper to that vocation. Even if a man struggled with same-sex attraction, he has not experienced freedom from lust. It would not be good for him to be a priest. If you're bound by lust, you cannot be a gift to others. You must be sufficiently geared towards Christ, his bride. Only freedom of the gift is to be free to be a bride of Christ properly. Marriage and celibacy do not divide the Christian community into two camps. The perfection of the Christian life is based on your whole desire about the marriage of the Lamb, not on whether you're having sex. Celibacy is a more direct participation in the marriage of the Lamb, only by way of anticipation. The virtue of sacrificing one flesh union, how valuable it is, does demonstrate how wonderful it is. But that, this is the, it is the tension of already but not yet. Virginity is not the absence of union, but the affection of union. Celibacy is disvalued when marriage is disvalued. The sexual revolution devalued both marriage and celibacy. If we don't understand the nuptial meaning of the body, we won't understand either vocation. We must be aware of what we are renouncing first. Every woman is called to motherhood, while either spiritual or physical sense. The nuptial meaning of the body bears towards the deeper meaning of the body. It preserves the integral truth of the body without losing what it means to be human. We're in desperate need for the meaning and dignity of bodies. This will help the world to heal from our wounds. The marriage of Mary and Joseph is a sublime paradox. Their marriage is one of profound spiritual fruitfulness. Christianity is full of paradox. God is three more persons. Two become one flesh. To be rich, you must sell everything to the poor. To live, you must die. Mary and Joseph lived the celibate vacation, the married vacation at the same time. Mary and Joseph's marriage is the marriage of heaven and earth. We left both vocations. If we comprehend their marriage, our brains will explain splatter with the wards. Joseph is the foster father of Jesus. He fully shares an authentic human fatherhood. He was not an adequate image to God the Father. Joseph was not perfect. Joseph points towards the Father who is to us all. Celibacy allows us to be even more of a gift to others. It's not a burden, but a joy. It's a statue of St. Teresa of Avila who is in ecstatic union with God. There's also suffering marriage as well as celibacy. So now we talk about the sacramentality of marriage. Marriage is a covenant of grace. We see this in the sacramentality of marriage, a total vision of the human being. Ephesians 5 is a key and classic text where the meaning of the universe is contained. We see the greatness and dignity that God has bestowed on our bodies. This passage is a crowning theme of themes. There's a clash between how the world sees Ephesians 5 and how the church sees Ephesians 5. The passage is a great mystery of spiritual warfare. It's called to take up arms for the great spiritual battle. 
St. Paul calls us to gird your lines with the truth. God has a specific plan for humanity. Ephesians 5 is a compendium of summer, the teaching about God and man, brought about fulfillment in Christ. It makes man aware of his supreme calling. It's a central theme in the whole of reality. Ephesians 5 reminds us that Christ fully reveals man to himself. We can try and understand how much richness and truth is contained in the scope of this wonderful passage. It's a meeting of the divine mystery with a vocation to marriage. The logic of this marvellous text frees our way of thinking, does not devalue the thinking of body and sex. Carnal love is meant to express the language of agape. So many people contrast the language of eros and agape. The nuptial meaning of the body is also the meaning of God's love. Eros is meant to be transformed by the carnal love of agape. The carnal union of spouses leads to agape. Ephesians 5, we have the head and body analogy. A husband is the head of the wife. Husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. In heaven there's one Christ loving himself. We are Christ's body. Christ is the head and we are the body. The husband is the image of the head and the wife the body. Headship's not about domination. This is not what St. Paul was getting at. Headship must not be like the gentles who lord it over their subjects. The master must be servant of all. Only the husband who is servant of his wife can claim authority. The husband and wife become one person, one subject without blurring individuality. There's a perfect unity and a perfect distinction. The husband and wife are lost and absorbed in another. The head and body analogy is of the bride and groom. The wife is a symbol of the church. God loves us first. The love of God is always responsive to his love. But no husband is perfect like Christ. The nature of marriage makes it similar to the marriage of Christ and the church. The analogy of an earthly spousal analogy is inadequate. Perhaps the least inadequate analogy we have helps us penetrate the very essence of this mystery. Some people are critical of Pope John Paul's hypernaturalism, but there are otherwise ways to explain how God loves us. But Christ did not become incarnate as a vine or shepherd, but as a bridegroom. The relationship between shepherd and sheep is not a sacrament. Spousal analogy is very efficacious, putting us reality with the splendor of God's love. Ephesians 5 is illuminated by the supernatural life. It helps us to understand the meaning of the body, masculinity and femininity. The passage that claims that wives should submit to their husbands has sometimes led to a feminist result. This is unst entirely understandable if we deny the gift. This would make God a tyrant. If man who is meant to image God is also a tyrant, women are justified in saying, I will not be dominated by your sin. Male domination is something that marks human history with sin. St. Paul is in no way justifying sin. He's calling men in particular to ensure the balance of the gift. He's calling man back to be the original man. St. Paul calls married couples to be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. To be subject to one's spouse means to be mutually given. It means mutual subjectation. It's the reciprocal donation of, of self. Christ is the profound and mature model of subjection. St. Paul outlines how there's a difference between male and female. Husbands are called to love their wives, and Christ loved the church. This means we can't treat them like doormats. Christ came not to be served, but to serve and to lay his life down for his bridegroom. Wives should allow their husbands to serve them. The deepest desire of the human heart is to be loved in this way. To be afraid of the word submission is to miss out on its evangelical genius. 
Submission means to be under the mission sent with authority to give a particular service. St. Paul called for Christians not to live as the Gentiles do. He called for Christians to be renewed in the spirit of their minds, calling them back to the original image. He was trying to restore original man. The husband is above all who he who loves, the image of he who loves. The wife is she who loved. Men can come to see with their wives an image of the church. The attraction for a woman should be not to grasp her, but to possess her and bless her. This blessing is not to lust after, but to genefect before her. Woman is part of the living God, the church. Every woman is a living church. You can have a living church dwelling within her body. Whenever you're tempted to lust, remind yourself that women are made in the image of God. Pray to see a woman as the image of the church. Pope John Paul II said, a woman, if a husband's truly love his wife, he should not allow intercourse merely to allow to serve his climax. He must take the difference between the sexes into account. He should attempt a climax to occur simultaneously. It shouldn't be for hedonistic reasons, for altruistic reasons. Men have a shorter, more violent arousal. For this, the act of virtues require for patience and self-giving in the sexual act. Sexual arousal in a woman is more slow. It's a virtuous act to contain your own climax to bring your wife to simultaneous climax. It's possible to seek pleasure of the other for altruistic reasons and service. This is more accurate, simple, the eternal joys that come in heaven. Physical beauty is a metaphor for holiness. The church should be holy and without blemish. In today's obsessive search for physical beauty, what we're really looking for is holiness. We must beg God to see other people purely. If husbands cannot see the beauty of their wife in the midst of her blemishes, you cannot be said to love your wife as Christ loved the church. Men should not make women try to attain some impossible standard of beauty. Women's stretch marks are beautiful because that's where they've said yes to you. Been lighty time again and again about the meaning of our body and our culture. How many men prefer the fantasy of porn to their own wives because they've bought into those lies? Christ's redeeming love can go deeper than any of this. We must beg God to see other people purely. Husbands have the challenge to see the beauty of their wives in the midst of her blemishes. If you cannot see the beauty of the wife, you cannot say to love your wife as Christ loved the church. Some people are attached to impossible striving towards beauty. The great mystery of God is the mystery of the inner Trinitarian life. God's desire is to share his mystery. How does God do it? He does it under the veil of signs and symbols. Sacrament is what makes visible the invisible, that which is revealed in Christ and hidden in God in all eternity. The body enters the definition of being a sacrament. He uses the sign to communicate signs. The catechism says that we need signs to communicate with God. A sacrament consists in manifesting of signs. We need to proclaim the mystery, but also accomplish the efficacious gift itself. The body is capable of making visible the invisible love of God. We must proclaim the mystery, but also accomplish the efficaciousness gift of self. This helps God to participate in the invisible mystery of love. The incarnation was not merely a response to sin. The incarnation is in the centre of history. We can only understand history and the future in light of the incarnation. Christ is the key and centre of the universe. He's the centre of everything. We are blessed with every spiritual blessing. In the supernatural world of the Father, these plans precede the original plan of man. The Father has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Marriage is a necessary precursor for us to live in communion with God. The redemption is the source of man's supernatural endowment. The mystery of Christ casts light on creation. From the beginning, God envisages the glory of a new creation in Christ. The incarnation was always part of God's plan. We live in a fallen world. 
what would happen if we didn't live in a fallen world? That's really in the realm of speculative theology. Marriage is an efficacious sign of God's saving plan for us. We see a foreshadowing of Christ's union with the church. The reality of married life is a sign that sums up the whole mystery of creation. The one flesh union is the oldest sign of the love of God. Ephesians 5 is the summer of the mystery of God and man. The passage is key stone to the meaning of life. The union of man and woman and the divine and the union of Christ and the church is one great sign and one great sacrament. This is the divine plan of the creative world. God's plan of life and love continues despite the effects of sin. The one flesh union is a sign that points towards the meaning of life. It's the mystery of God in all of eternity. God's eternal plan becomes a physical reality through the nuptial union of the spouses. Should not make a, an icon out of this idol. We're so interested in sex. Is this when we see to untwist the lies about sex? This is why the devil attracts, attacks right here. The original grace was lost through original sin. Now we need sacraments to restore what was lost. All the sacraments remit sin. Every single human being is longing for union. We've always been longing for something. Sacrament of creation prepares us for union with Christ. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Grace is only remission for sin. <coughs> it allows us to have a real relationship with God. All the sacraments are like marriage because they are nuptial and allow us to join the bridegroom. The entire Christian life unite with the nuptial mystery in love with Christ. The Eucharist is a sacrament of the bridegroom with the bride. The man images Christ with the body. This is why only a man can be ordained a priest. The physical confers spiritual reality. The spousal significance of the body is true, authentic, nuptial love redeems and heals us. Christ not only redeems us with his body, we share in the work of creation, the work of procreation. The nuptial love share the work of redemption. A wife's love heals me, taps into exacting of who I am. Her love is so genuine, it heals me. All woundedness comes from lack of genuine love. Healing can come from real experience of real authentic love. Marital love is redemptive in Jesus Christ. The goal of married love is to get one another to heaven. We're called to love as God loves. We're wounded because of original sin. Christ is coming into our life as bodies. In marriage, as for others, becomes redemptive. The sign of marriage does not happen in exchange of vows, but the moment of consummation. The Pope says really the sign is both. It begins with the exchange of the vows in conjugal intercourse. The marriage then passes into reality. What was meant with those vows? intercourse where the vows the words of marriage become flesh all of the married life is a sign of christ's love for his church consummation is the expression of the sign it's a sign that consummates the sign intercourse is the sign of the sign of marriage all of the married life is a gift this becomes most evident with the union of the flesh sexual intercourse the very particular expression of the sign the body is the manifestation of the spirit this means unity and assumes the reality of the sign. The language of the body means that the body speaks of the mystery of God. Man in his mystery and vocation is called to love as God loves. We cannot express this without God's love. Man and women are ministers of the sacrament of marriage. They're called to express the meaning of their bodies. The language of the body is meant to proclaim agape, the mystery of God's love. The language of the body is prophetic because a prophet, prophet is the one who speaks for God. 
when the spouses proclaim the language of the body, they participate in the prophetic mission of Christ. We must be careful to distinguish between true and false prophets. If we can speak to the truth of the body, we can also speak a lie. One who speaks lies with the body. One can speak lies with the body. Judas gives Jesus a kiss in the garden. Satan is the father of lies. He wants us to speak lies with our bodies. This is precisely the goal of the anti-word. He wants us to speak lies with our bodies. We no longer speak lies with our bodies. This is what is state with sexual morality. Sexual union is meant to express the words of the body. How healthy will a marriage be if one is continually unfaithful in the marriage vows? If concupiscence causes many errors in the reading of the language of the body, in the spirit of the ethos of redemption, there's always a possibility of changing from converting, converting error to truth. We discover the true meaning of body and existence. Do not be afraid to live the lies you have lived. Put them aside. You'll be living your true nuptial gift. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Thank you, Jesus, that you have saved us from sin. Love and fruitfulness. First, we outline an adequate anthropology about the origin, history, destiny of the human person. It's been applied to all aspects of the human person. Then there was applied to celibacy, marriage, and the immorality of contraception. Questions about human vitae permeate the sum total of this catechesis. The entire catechesis will be considered totally to reflect on human vitae, on human life. What is at stake in the debate on contraception is the very meaning of human life. The Bible includes an ode to erotic love. 2 Timothy states that all scripture is inspired by God. that is profitable for teaching, for truth, correction and training in righteousness. The Song of Songs is a training, good for training us in righteousness. Pope John Paul was critical of those who rushed to criticise the Song of Songs, making it spiritual, fictional rather than physical. The Song of Songs contains an exhaustive understanding of the sacramental sign of marriage. Both Eros and Agape are involved in the love between spouses, which is both spiritual and sensual. The references in the dialogue of lovers is about hearing, loving and tasting one another. There's a profound connection between sex and eating. Both drives keep us alive. We need to eat to live. We need to reproduce to keep alive. What is a passionate kiss of love? Love is really saying, I want to taste you. I want to eat you. I want to consume you. I want to take it into myself to become part of you. You are what you eat. This is why lovers nibble one another. The Eucharist is the mystical marriage between Christ and his church. This marriage is consummated by eating his blood and body. Some of the greatest theologians have enjoyed the book of Song of Songs. The bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh is developed in full dialogue. The point of departure and point of arrival is the bride's femininity and the groom's masculinity. The attraction of one of the other person generates love. The attraction between man and woman is raw material for love. Genuine love springs from the mutual attraction. Love unleashes a special experience of the beautiful. This involves the entire person. It gives rise to mutual satisfaction. Both mutual attraction and the body in and of themselves are good. When we recognize the beauty and goodness of another person, we can see something genuinely beautiful. This leaves our sights to the heavens. The eloquent lover in the Song of Songs refers to this lover as a sister, and this heart is ravished with one glance. The word sister signifies the union of mankind and the difference of feminine originality. The word sister signifies disinterested tenderness. The sincerity is love, not, a, not an object. In a brother-sister relationship, they share a common humanity. This love matures later in life. To see a beloved sister presents the kind of challenge. This is precisely the point where, they, where people say that you do not need that kind of thing with your sister, but also 
You should not lust after your bride. This is a challenge for men. One of the tragedies of dating is that immediately the expectations of romance or intimacy are present from the start. If you haven't come to know the other person as a sister or brother, this is a mist and a relationship is based not on genuine love, but lust. Lust cannot unite two people. It does while the gratification lasts and then something else comes along. The root of the problem of divorce is lust. The main threat of communication is selfishness. Often lust is the root of miscommunication. We learn how to overcome lust. We've truly learned how to communicate through communion. A lover describes a woman as a garden enclosed in a fountain sealed. This metaphor recognizes women as the master of her own mystery. Every person is a mystery. This metaphor recognizes if a man to enter into her garden, he cannot barge down the door. He cannot manipulate the woman into handing it in the key. By offering the gift, knocking one is brought to the sincerity of the gift. One is open to receive and the free opening present a risk for the man. She might, she might refuse the gift. Jesus initiated a gift when he died on the cross. He was nailed to a tree and he gave his body for us. He was refused. Love never violates the love of another person. The lover is open to receptivity with a free given yes. The language of the body is based in truth. It keeps peace, peace. It keeps pace with the interior inviolability of the person. Ladies are a master of their own mystery. If anyone's trying to barge down the door, do not surrender the key. Do not give yourself to someone who does not have the key. They're not interested in going to the cross. Husbands are addicted to pornography, do not know how to love or how to care. Men must respect women as masters of mystery. This is a priority for men. In the book of Tobit, Sarah has seven husbands before Tobias. Before the consummation of their marriages, each man was struck dead. An angel comes to Tobias and he wants to take Sarah as his wife. He lives because he prays to Tsar God's original plan. He prays that he is not taking a sister because of lust, but with sincerity, and it should be granted mercy and great old together. Only the permanent total gift of self can be mirrored with a gift of self. Tobias wanted to live with Sarah for the rest of his life. In the face of authentic marital love, The only permanent total gift of self can be mirrored with the gift of self. Tobias wanted to live with Sarah for the rest of his life. In the face of authentic marital love, death has not a chance. In the face of life and death, Tobias and Sarah are unhesitating in this, facing this test. In the nuptial embrace is the embrace of life and death. Will you image God or will you not? If you cut yourself off from God, you choose death. Sex is the renewal of the wedding vows. If this is not the case with your body, you're promising something you do not recognise. In the film Vanilla Sky, Tom Cruise's girlfriend tells him after they engage in premarital sex, your body is making a promise even if you don't. Genuine love prefers to die than to ever commit evil. The truth of the power of love is that love has confidence in the victory of good. Love is victorious because it prays. The true language of the body is liturgical. Marital life is liturgical. Liturgy is the participation of the people of God in the work of God. The work of God is to love as good loves. This is the church's celebration of divine worship. The act of sex is profound in the marital relationships. The gift of oneself to another is an act of worship. The marital bed can be viewed as an altar. The offering of bodies as a living sacrifice is a spiritual act of worship. When spouses live this out, they live this out with one another. The liturgy involves man's sanctification with positive with signs perceptible to the senses. All of the sacrifices go through the good times and the bad. Married life is liturgical as the marital union could not be any more holy. 
man and woman encountered a great mystery through the union of two that have become one. The idea of bringing God into the bedroom perhaps just are. Is that style of lust or an act of love? God is love. To keep God out of the bedroom or fear of bringing God into the bedroom is the case for many. Many people have little idea of why God is part of the action, why is he intimately involved or why he should be. The Lord is the giver of life. It's he who is the Holy Spirit and active and present in the marital union. Spouses are not free to assign their own meaning of the act. The meaning of the act is already given by God. Pastoral concern means the true pursuit of wherever is good for man. This is a true understanding of what is good for human love. An ever clearer understanding of human love is not to diminish any way of the saving teaching of Christ. Counterfeits can never satisfy. The essential evil of the contraceptive act is that it causes a rupture in the order of the person. One chooses the pleasure of the climax, but it will not take the responsibility of the act. Is a woman going to be loved for her own sake if the man wishes her fertility did not exist right now? The idea that you will only have sex if you, if you sterilise yourself brings the human person to the level of animals. This brings a rupture between body and soul. The inner truth of the communion of persons has been cancelled out. There's a law of gradualness in the progression in which we gradually come to understand these truths. However, the law of gradualness has been never compromised with the gradualness of law. It's possible to understand the immorality of contraception through reason. What one learns in the theology of the body is the deepest theological reasons for the immor immorality of contraception. Couples are called to be prophets in saying that God is life-giving love. Couples that engage in counter signs become false prophets. The language of the body is changed from propheticism to counterfeit. Christ calls on forgiveness for those who do not know what they did. There's no justification for people to be beaten in the head with a hammer of correction. Better still is the invitation to embrace one's own greatness. We're made in the image of likeness of God. We share in communion with him and marital love is the foreshadowing of our union with God. We can speak the truth over our bodies with the act of conception. Blasphemy is saying that God is not get life-giving love in order to in order to know that that is wrong. Most people learn the language of a body in a construction site. They do not know the real meaning of the body because they do not know what they're looking for. We need to help them understand what they're really looking for. This does not mean they have to be perfect tomorrow. A man and woman expresses a yes every time they unite in the sexual act. If a husband and wife are regularly unfaithful in their wedding vows, what would their relationship be like? Those who live in the ethos of redemption bear themselves as a sign for the mystery of redemption and creation. They live it as the ethos of the heart. They have no desire to use contraception because that's what the grace of God has the power to do. Some would prefer it to be crucified, to, that to use contraception, the contraception of the meaning of love. Counterfeit can never bring happiness. Does this mean you have loads of kids? Church calls for a responsible parenthood. One cannot speak of acting arbitrarily or bringing it to chance. A married couple must work in conformity with every intention. God has a plan for every couple to live in conformity. This does not mean every family has to have 14 kids. Some prudently and generously decide to have a large family. Some couples, for serious reasons, due to respect to the moral law, may decide to space children from an indeterminate period. The one flesh union is a sign of the kingdom. Not everyone is having sex right now. There's nothing wrong with abstaining from sex. Most people do this 99.9999% of the time. Abstaining from sex can be an act of love. There are many situations where a couple has a reason to abstain.
If one of the couples was sick, abstaining would be demonstrating love for the other. Immediately after childbirth may not be the best time to bring life into the world. We're free as human beings to choose whether to have sex. If we do have sex, we must conform to the will of God. How is it possible to decide whether or not to have a child? The guideline is responsible parenthood. This requires a conscious effort and an estimation of the good of the family and the good of the church. Church teaches this must be the decision of the married couple themselves. They must arrive at these judgments before God. No one can read the hearts of others. Some people think they only have two children. They must not trust God. There might be reasonable reasons for spacing birth. Use of infertile periods can be used to space children. What's the morally correct number level for the number of children? This is a dangerous and flawed question. It's danger of believing that larger families are what makes families holy. Every child comes into the world because God wanted them to. If a husband could not control himself, this is not an act of virtue. The loving thing for a husband is to have self-mastery. For a parent to be responsible, decision to avoid sexual union during a first time can be legitimate. We can space children, make sure this desire does not come from selfishness. Responsible for parenthood may include the willingness to accept a deeper family if you prudently feel this is what you're called to do. Natural fertility awareness can be used like contraception. The main calling of married love is procreative love. There might be religious reasons to be non-procreative. You cannot be anti-procreative. Woman is a model of the church. If you choose to enter my church, God, if it is your will, let there be life. The sterilization of womb would be to desecrate and violate its very meaning. If one sterilized the act, it is an anti-procreative act. The difference between this and with either abstaining or using natural fertility awareness is cosmotic, is cosmic. It's like the difference between miscarriage and abortion. God is the Lord of life. You take powers into your own hands and make yourself God. God is always God with natural fertility awareness. You set the way that God made you. You like the way that God made you. A man says to his wife, honey, I love your ovaries. He loves the very fact she could get pregnant. Contraception does not pave the way that God made for you. The wife's fertility is not a curse. Any couple who lives the church's teaching speaks a message about natural law. Natural law is sometimes confused with the impersonal law of nature. Natural law pertains to man's rational participation in the divine law. It's the free participation of God's plan for our lives. Freedom distinguishes us from the animals. When we tinker with human freedom, we tinker with natural law and other human persons. The body is not some subhuman natural thing. The body's personal and biological laws involve human personality. The church is sometimes accused in its teaching on contraception, reducing ethics to biology. When we tinker with our bodies, we also tinker with our persons. Natural law refers to man, the integral truth of his subjectivity. This brings us to the fidelity of the creator. The divine person is the source of order and law in the universe. We are made in the image and likeness of God, God's love is not sterile. God's love is generous, and this is why God gave us genitals to participate in generous, generating love. Our fertility is stamped right into our bodies. We can tinker with God's design for human happiness. Teaching of conception is not based on natural law, but also on the scriptures. The story of Onan is how he spilt his seed and God slew him as a test of life and death. Contraception impedes the expression of love for a spouse. A true appreciation of the gift of fertility fosters authentic conjugal love, which upholds a love that merges the human and the divine.
The whole of humanity is about God, who's revealed himself as love. God shows his love as Father. We are called to express the love of God and Father. Original sin attempts to abolish fatherhood. Contraception attempts to do the same thing. Couples who use natural fertility awareness express a love which rejoices in the truth. It's a love which spiritual joy is expressed. Couples behold this is very good. The role of authentic love consists in the protecting of the true communion of persons. The power of love is expressed in this. God is not schizophrenic in having respect for the body. Marriage and conjugal love are ordered to the begetting of children. Sometimes it's difficult to reconcile these two. The difficulty arises when man is lowered to concupiscence. The concupiscence of the flesh does damage to the body. Love comes when concupiscence is overcome. What happens when contraception is used that we're contradicting of loving as God loves? This is when the conjugal act is contradicting God's love. We are called to love as God loves. How can it be the act of love if we don't want God to be part of it? God is love. We want the masters of our own decision. It is virtue that makes us truly free. The practice of continence can be a virtue. The relationship between ethics and ethos is once again important. You can follow the rules of NFP without living the truth of conjugal love. Continence must be practiced as a virtue through the desire to uphold virtue. Only one is mastery and of his decision is capable of true love. One cannot say no, what is a yes really worth? Conception was not invented to prevent pregnancy. We already have a 100% safe, reliable method of doing that. It's called abstinence. Conception was invented by men because they didn't want to abstain. There was no other reason. It was invented so that men and women did not have to be masters of themselves. Man can only give himself to others and once he's master of himself and has self-control. This is not the case. He is steeped to the level of animals. Continence is not merely a technique. It's a definite and permanent moral attitude of being in control of one's desires. This guides those desires towards the truth of love. A virtuous person tends towards good with all the spiritual and sensory powers. Continence is not about living one's sexuality in a cage, but keeping them in check. A virtuous person sees the transformation of desires. It's their real dream and passions to experiences, experiences loving as God loves. This makes it possible to have self-mastery and joy in leading a morally good life. A good man is he who voluntarily practices truth. A person who wants to succeed in this way must be committed to the progressive education and the will. Feelings are the most simple acts in which the moral position into practice. Asceticism is fasting about the gaining self-mastery. Eating disorders are connected with a misunderstanding of the true dignity of the body. There's hope of healing those who have eating habits. To grow in virtue, you have to be realistic and know where you are. You start small and grow and know yourself. We talk about virtue, it's not about natural capacities. Some virtue is given by grace. Self-mastery is a renewed effort at all stages of life. Continence is not only the ability to abstain, but we must also have a positive understanding of it. It's positive both in the context and character. It is exacting and long work. When we are nature, when we are mature and self-control and character, we no longer need to keep desires locked up in a cage because what desire is good. The first manifestation of conjugal chastity might be resisting the lust of the flesh. Those who indulge in lust are making noise on the piano, just banging the keys because they do not know what love truly sounds like. 
Chastity does not impoverish manifestations or affection that enriches them. Both men and women, when they move away from concupiscence, experience new language of the body, altogether unknown, that frees one from the tensions of sex. We must be willing to die in resisting any temptation to indulge life, in, even in marriage. Humano Viti brings a new married love, marked by Christian realism. Sacraments inject sanctity in our lives. They respect the transcendent power living with us. They help us to have profound respect for the gift of party with awe and reverence for God and creation. We're called to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. In married life, the Holy Spirit stirs up an attitude of respect in the couple. This profound experience of respect for the other is part of the interior resonance of chastity. Couples then are not afraid to divorce infertility, but chastity reaches the unrepeatability of someone that no, no one can replace. You don't just love the characteristic of someone, but know your spouse is unrepeatable. Relationships based on characteristics will be based on shifting stands. This is someone's not who loved for. It, it comes from God and leads the couple to respect the dignity of the conjugal act. They're filled with veneration for the conjugal act. It brings veneration for the majesty of the Redeemer, the spousal love of the Redeemer. Humano Vitae brings an authentic marital spirituality. They open their flesh to the indwelling of the spirit. The mutual union then spouses become one flesh so they participate in the life of the Trinity, live life according to the spirit. They become one flesh and welcome the Lord. The giver of life, every child is a manifestation of the work of the Holy Spirit, sign of the redemption of the sign of eternal life. The sign that the couple say when they render their acts sterile is that I do not want eternal life. Culpability is not assigned. I prefer a momentary pressure of sterilized orgasm to the participation in the inner life of the Trinity. This is a bad choice. You may know that you're choosing, choosing you would not do this. Marital spirituality is best lived by the grace that comes from the sacraments. It's the most infallible and indispensable. Marriage and family life is enhanced by the power of prayer. Grace that flows from the Eucharist and penance is an indispensable part of living the truth. Contraception is the antithesis of authentic marital spirituality. It's a no to the mystery of redemption. It brings a subjective lack of understanding to the understanding of the exceptional conjugal act. God's love is an invitation of encouragement of merciful redeemer who wants to forgive you. It leads to profound awareness to the sanctity of life and mystery of creation. So theology of the body is a key component of the new evangelization. Future of the family passes by way for the family. The renewal of Christian life can only come about through the renewal of, of Christian life. Pope John Paul's theology of the body provides an antidote to the culture of death. Its theological foundation for the new evangelization. That's a fresh theological proposal. It compellingly demonstrates the world full of full truth of God's plans for the body and sexuality. Far from being prudish or oppressive, it brings a liberating, redeeming ethos that corresponds deeply with the desires of the human hearts. Theology of the body is not just about sex and marriage, but demonstrates truth and existence or ramifications for all theology. Challenges us to think sexuality which speaks of the divine. Cardinal Angelo Scola has said that virtually every thesis in theosian has been seen in a new light with the rich personalism that's implied with the trinity of it complies all areas of the church's realm. Few priests preach on such themes, but theology of the body has over a thousand biblical references. 
you can take any Sunday reading which is related to the message of theology of the body. There's a microscopic percentage of Catholics who know about theology of the body, but numbers are growing. You now have a particular responsibility to promote this important message. The essential message of theology of the body is that God is love and we are made in his image. This is how we reveal the plan of God to plan of love in the world. Theology of the body contains a wealth of mysteries that keep on deepening the more you come to learn. It's impossible to comprehend everything, but do not be discouraged. The anti-life her heresy has threatened to destroy our culture at its roots. John Paul has attempted to vanquish this attack by theological exegesis on the economy of salvation. Theology of the body might be remembered as a pivotal moment in the life of the fledgling church. Pope John Paul said the 21st century would be a century of religion, or it would be not a century at all. In 1976, he said that perhaps we experienced the highest level of tension between the word and the anti-word in human history. This could be the last lap in denial since the good, of e good and evil between good and evil. Pope John Paul was the greatest influence in the whole world in bringing the fall of communism. In 1982, he went to Poland to preach to people who had been oppressed and appealed to the dignity of the human person, something that nobody could snuff out. He talked to the happiness of fulfilment, which brought a revolution, bringing down the Iron Curtain. The sexual revolution has brought far more carnage than Marxism, but slowly a new revolution is, is starting. It's bringing down the culture of death to build a culture of life. There's many parallels between communism and the sexual revolution. The Berlin Wall was a barrier between East and West, perhaps the biggest symbol. Likewise, pills, injections, plugs, surgical implants and sterilisation are a barrier between man and woman. But we're already seeing this first signs of the falling of the wall. The culture of death cannot continue much longer because it's already rotted on the inside. Christians are a people of hope. We have faith in God our Father. God is preparing a great springtime of Christianity. You can already see the first signs, the burning disaster and the meaning of life and share it with others. Signs of true hope. 2,000 years ago, 12 people changed the world. We will change the face of the earth. Everyone's longing to hear the message of theology of the body. The whole world is a mission field waiting to soak this up. It's not a message or a new program. The program already exists in the same as ever. The new evangelization is directed towards areas have historically been Christian, have lost their faith. A baptized non-believers, new phenomenon. Christianity in some places is just a cultural thing because it's lost its meaning and purpose. Vatican II was a call for the church to return to the living experience of faith. Evangelicals can complement Catholics with a real relationship with Jesus Christ. Catholic, Catholics have many gifts to learn from and vice versa. The gospel should be brought with a new ardor means methods and it means of expression the cry of the new evangelization should be we also see the meaningful way of communicating them the church is called to announce bear witness and the communion of holy witness the gospel message is stamped into our bodies we're called to love as god loves we're called to union with god most incarnate the gospel in our way we have to get in touch with human questions what does it mean to be human Modern rationalism is divorced from Christ. It does not tolerate mystery, does not accept complementarity between male and female, does not acknowledge the full truth revealed to men that have been revealed in Christ Jesus. It radically opposes Ephesians 5. He holds vague deism, belief with a supreme being. God became man in order to save man. Jesus is a redeemer and also a bridegroom. When man loses sight of a God that loves him, when families do not share in the mystery of the love of God, Things are reduced to mere temporal dimension of life. Earthly life becomes a mere scenario for existence and financial gain. 
He who dies with the most toys wins. Theology of the body reunited us with a great natural mystery. This is the reply of the church to modern rationalism. Christ fully reveals man to himself and reveals the sham of modern rationalism. Christ is the bridegroom of the ultimate mystery of the sacrament of life and love. This is where the religion of God became man. It counts the religion of man who made himself God. Those who reject the natural mystery of the reject the God who is greater than we are. Those that say, I think, therefore I am, hear the God who says, I am who I am. God gives us great gifts when we turn him in love. In the beginning of the new millennium, we cross the threshold of hope and entering a new springtime, new gospel of life. We're in a Passover between the culture of death and culture of life. Theology of the body is not a formula. It's about a person. It's about a theology that's taken on flesh. We shall not be saved by a formula. Present, we're in a collision of forces of good of evil. This is what the heart and its battle clash with the men and women's call to life-giving communion. One who will win this great clash is the one who welcomes the gift. When Christ returns, will he find faith? Faith is, in its greatest sense, the openness to the human heart, to the gift of the Holy Spirit. Sin denies the gift. Faith welcomes the gift. Sin is the opposite of faith. Mary is the bride without spot or wrinkle. All glory to be to the word who made flesh, who welcomes the gift. The mystery of original sin, the following is a realm of speculative theology. We can't know with certainty what the original sin was because it were not specific to the, to the Bible. Oh, does this not mean we can ask questions about them? Must keep in mind we must never know about the mysteries fully. Below is a provocative story of original sin. There is held out clearly with arguments. This is not taken certainty. Don't dismiss the conclusion, but challenge the arguments. Do we understand original sin? The story uses symbolic language to understand the fall, using only fruit and a tree. Original sin is a definite act of disobedience. As it is a mystery, symbol is the only thing we can use. All of our reality is sacramental. We live in a world of visible signs that communicate the invisible mystery of God. The whole human story is a drama. Genesis text is loaded with symbolic meaning. The serpent enters the garden. Many theologians talk about sexual imagery or innuendo. The serpent can be considered a phallic symbol according to this theory. Garden is also to talk about a lover's womb. In the Song of Songs we read, you are a garden enclosed. The imagery is sexual in some sense. A serpent has entered the garden. Some who have read Genesis text believe the sex caused the fall. In essence, original sin is a falsification of the truth about God and man. In formulating a hypothesis about God and man, we are looking for a sign. Symbolism communicates deeper reality. Sin is anti-sign that contradicts the meaning of God, the meaning of humanity. This takes place in the human heart. We also speak of human sin as pride. Pride is an internal reality. It's also an external manifestation of pride. By eating the fruit, Adam and Eve look into their being a lie, they took this fruit into themselves. The act of original sin is pride both inwardly and outwardly. Man was tempted by the devil to let the trust in his creator die in his heart. His disobedience of God was an outward manifestation. In sin, man chose himself over and against God. We don't want to be like the creature. We want to be like the 
we are like God and the original sin was without God, not in accordance with who God is. This involved the denial of the gift. The devil tempted man to believe that if he ate from the tree, he'd be like God. The implication was not that God did not want to use him to be like him. God always created, always created us in his image. In essence, sin is the negation of God is creating what God wills for us in the beginning of forever. God wills natural union for us. It's the internal mystery of God. This is in and through the primordial sacrament. Heaven is the eternal consummation. In sin, man rejects this gift of God. Original sin is not the first sin in the step of things. Original sin gives birth to all other problems. It's a parental sin. The parents of the whole human race give birth to sin. In order to uncover the plot of Satan, we must think whether the mind of Satan. God creates nothing that is evil. Lucifer fell through pride. Satan beheld the eternal plan of God to divinize us. He became envious of us or the plan to divinize us. The incarnation was not an afterthought. From all eternity, God planned to take on flesh. This was not a consequence of our sin. Satan had a desire to see the plan of God. He could not accept the idea that beings lower than the angels could be raised higher than the angels. Angels were then being called to serve unfleshed creatures. Angels were called to serve us. We then have a guardian angel. As human beings, we're both spirit and matter. We are breath and dust together. The eternal son would take on his flesh and divinize us. Satan wants us to serve him, reject the plan of God. His motto says, non-serve him or will not serve. Satan's plan is built through a denial of God's plan. This might be through separation, denial, divorce. The symbolic plans to bring us together unite. This is God's plan. The world sees the combination between the symbolic and the diabolic. Satan wants the sign to be the anti-sign. Man's relationship to God is highly symbolic. In the union of man and woman, the efficacious symbol of Christ. God's plan is through the gift of himself. This is through union, communion and marriage. We all contain the mystery of God within us. This is revealed in and through our flesh. This is a call of life beginning communion. Satan's goal is the attack of communion of God and man. With the attack of the symbol, the man and the woman, sin and death, entered one man's history. Man and woman was created, called to become one flesh. There's great meaning in sexual complementarity. God is called to make out of himself, make a gift of himself to his bride. Gift of complementarity is part of the male embrace. It's the man who proposes to the woman. This is symbolically very important because the man who gives the gift of life, women receive the gift of life. In receiving this gift, she also gives the gift of life. In this way, giving becomes accepting. The mystery of giving and receiving brings out communion of persons. This shows in a particular way in the image and likeness of God. Mankind gives, receives and accepts. Right from the beginning, we're giving the blessing of fertility. Original sin cannot be properly understood without the creation of man and woman as the image and likeness of God. Sin consists in pride and denial and negation of being made in the image and likeness of God. Original sin is a contradiction of what it means to be created in the image and likeness of God. Sexual complementarity is part of God's plan. God is symbolically masculine and initiates the gift of life. All of humanity is symbolically feminine because we conceive the gift of divine life within us. Just as a bride conceives new life within her, we are made to receive the gift of divine life within us. Women are representative of the whole human race. You must thank every woman for being a woman, for being a symbol of mankind, telling all of us to receive the gift of God's life within you. Mary is the fulfillment of humanity. Mary received the gift of love as a whole being. 
She received divine life within us. This is why she's our model and mother. Edith Stein was a big influence on Pope John Paul II. She's an unconsidered, under consideration of being named a doctor of the church. The narration of creation is full of mysteries in which we cannot consider here. Why was it forbidden to eat fruit? What fruit was given to the husband to eat? Why did the tempter approach the woman first? God gave us two commandments in the garden. The first was a positive commandment, be fruitful. The second was a negative commandment, do not eat the fruit. These two commandments are leaked. These two commandments are linked. They're the flip side of one another. It's interesting to ponder. George Weigel said in Genesis chapters 1 to 3, sexuality, procreation, and moral choosing are all intimately linked. Satan proposes moral relativism. Symbolic meaning of eating from the tree of knowledge of good and evil is here. There's a close relationship between sexuality and communion. Adam and Eve lack knowledge before the fall. The significance of knowledge is important here. Adam and Eve had some concept of evil prior to the fall. Man experienced original solitude and nakedness. They proclaimed the knowledge of good in the original conjugal union. Through good sin, women brought about pain and childbearing, and man is brought through suffering and tilling the ground. Both male and female sin in the fall. There's a clear distinction of roles in the punishments for original sin. The tempter first tempted the woman. This was not because women were more easily induced towards evil, because he has easier access, because there's a greater significance with the woman. Original sin is a rebellion of our creation as creatures. Satan tempts the woman to believe that God is not gift. The goal is of Satan is to reject our subjectivity to our gift. This convinces the one who embodies the receptivity of the gift. Woman embodies receptivity to gift. There's easier access to the woman whose receptivity is subject to fear and vulnerability. Satan wants to teach us that God is not gift, to negate the creature between sexual difference. This is where we learn the distinction between God and creature. Satan works to distort, distort the way we think. God is placed in a position of suspicion and accusation with the idea that he does not love us. Sexual complementarity is a symbolic or the union of God with humanity. Satan's goal is to get us to reject position as the one who re receives because God initiates. In temptation, we take a homosexual relationship with God. God is already the masculine initiator. In rejecting God's imitation, we aim to take life on par with him. Sigmund Freud said that sexual activity is perverse when it's independent of the orientation towards procreation. The concept of act is union with variance with the original order. It's an anti-sign of gift and sign of God's love. Original sin consists in rejecting God's love. Generation embodies the gift. The book of Genesis describes the generation of, of life with God. All generation is like the generation of life in God. We share in the eternal generation. Spouses participate in the creative power of God. This is part of the eternal mystery of generation. Father generates the son from where the love comes to the mystery of eternal generation. This is the overflow of life-giving love. The eternal mystery of life-giving generation is through the triune God. Procreation is rooted in creation. It's a reproduction of the mystery of creation. God is our creator. We have to call to live in our, our cooperation with him as co-creators. This is how we image God. The call to be fruitful is to live in the image which I created you. The mind of Satan wished to keep us from God's gift of life and love. How is mystery of life in the world demonstrated? How do we make visible life and love? The sign of the mystery of creation, God wants us to make, God wants to make the anti-sign. Satan wants to, to make it a sign of anti-love. 
The witness to creation is through the witness to love as the source of self-giving. The body tells us the mystery of God's creative love. This happens in and through the body. The child is one flesh union reality that the parents have become. Original sin was part of the beginning of untruthfulness. Satan's goal is to falsify creative love. The rejection of love that determines our being in nuptial union is part of Satan's plan to negate our beginning. He wants to wipe us out and take us out. He reminds us of our receptivity. God is the giver of life and love. We must receive the gift of life from him. We're in a position of receptivity to him. Whereas Adam in the story of the fall, a serpent has entered the garden. This is the sanctuary of God. It's attacking his bride. Was not Adam in charge of the, guarding the guardian? In Eve's womb, in Eve's womb in the garden, in the Song of Songs we read, you are a garden in Christ, my sister, my bride. The womb is also sanctuary. Satan's attempt is to deny creation. In his empty, he wants to impede the whole thing. Woman is destined to bring the sun into the world. Something profound is going on here. Man's role as father is also intended to be abolished in the world. Satan is aiming at fracture, separation and disunity in order to impede our divinization. His goal is to devour the child. Each time that motherhood is repeated in history, in the woman we see a struggle for every human being in their yes or no to God. Either a yes or no to God's eternal plan for humanity. Satan's attack is against the woman. Redemption is the flip side to the fool. Women brings about a yes to God in the eternal life-giving communion. Mary's fear is yes to conceiving life in the womb. Original sin might have been a no to the gift of life. This is precisely what Adam wants from all humanity. Both Eve and Mary are approached by angels. Lucifer to deny God's life and Gabriel to receive God's life. Lucifer is the anti-annunciation. He does not want us to be divinized us from ourselves. Satan is the anti-word. In original sin... Eve denies receptivity to God. Original sin abolishes fatherhood. Satan's anti-word claims that God is not gift, not life, not generates, and then negates the son. Satan's goal is to destroy the son. If God is not the father, he has no son. Satan's goal is to deny the son. The Antichrist is the one who denies Christ came in the flesh. When Adam and Eve reject God and the image is one of sterility, rather than image of life-giving generosity of God, they become an image of non-life. They decide what is evil. When temptation came, they denied God as father. A contraceptive couple who intentionally sterilized an act of intercourse perfect the anti-sign of natural mystery. In 1968, moral relativism entered the church. An intentionally sterilized act is the devil's language. It makes the sign the anti-sign. It's the negation of act of the creator. It falsifies creative love. Once to the attempt to abolish fatherhood and the motherhood's denial of the incarnation. Contraception divides man's create, creaturely status. I'll decide whether or not this, whether life is life-giving. The language of the body can also bring the language of Christ. A woman who intentionally sterilizes said, let me be done according to my will. Every act of being is a reminder of the word may flesh. The original sin might have been contraception. All sin participates in denial. We're looking for the parental sin committed by our parents. Nuptial meaning deals with our origins. It talks how we come forth towards life and love. The denial of the nuptial meaning of the body is an efficacious anti-sign. We can see in our world the chaos that has come from contraception. But even right after original sin, we read the Proto-Evangelium. 
redemption is immediately linked to the woman in childbearing. The proto-evangelium proves that original sin does not destroy love. Despite the devil's attempt to create, deny creative love by evil, new Adam and Eve undo original sin. The no of original sin is overcome by the redemption of the second Adam and Eve. Eve accepted the anti-word, but Mary believed God's word and conceived that were within her. St. Paul states in 1 Timothy 2.4, that woman was deceived, but she will be saved through childbearing. Life giving communion was restored at the cross. Our sin can be the denial of the life-giving nuptial union. Satan did not foil the plan of God. Satan did want to obliterate the sun, but through the greatest abomination, the greatest good is unleashed at Golgotha. The cross became the tree of life. The cross is our hope for the power, power of life. In 1884, Leo XIII had a vivid dream where he saw Satan ask God for 100 years in which to obliterate the church. As a result, he wrote St. Michael the Archangel Prayer. All the quick sixth is greater saying that the smoke of Satan had entered the church. On the 25th of July 1968, the dignity of human life was upheld. A culture that rejects human vitae plays out the same denial of original sin. The issue of a human you know, vitae is a struggle for the value of life of meaning itself. With contraception, women rejected their femininity to be like men. Men wanted to be like God and divorce the fatherness, become rampant. The world is facing the greatest confrontation between the church and the anti-church, most darkly in our day. We're called to proclaim life-giving love. Faith is the openness of the human heart to the gift of God's life. We're called to proclaim life-giving love. Faith is the openness of the human heart to the gift of God life. When the son of man returns, will he find faith on earth? Thank you so much indeed for listening today.